Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Welcome back to Ivy League Murders. Hey, Laura, how are you doing? Hey, Sarah, I'm great. Well, what a special day for Laura. Happy birthday. Thank you, Sarah. I am 40 again. <laughs> 40, 20, 27. Exactly. That's what I you know, told me. Exactly. Well, you're being very nice to me on my birthday. What a great way to spend my birthday. Absolutely. Doing our favorite thing, which is podcasting about murder. Really, really exciting case we have today. So let's get going. Okay. So between the iconic trials of Dr. Sam Shepard in 1954 and the Manson family murders, there was a story of infidelity and murder that was splashed across the headlines. It was June 18, 1957 in West Covina, California, and Dr. Bernard Finch was on the lam after killing his wife, Barbara. He and his young, beautiful mistress, Carol Tregoff, had schemed to do away with Finch's wife, Barbara. Under California law at the time, Barbara was due all of Bernard's property if they got divorced. This was because she could prove Bernard had had affairs, only one of which was Carol Tregoff. Bernard would be ruined financially unless Barbara herself was unfaithful. Enter con man and gigolo Jack Cody. Finch and Tregoff hired him to kill Barbara. True to form, Cody took the money and ran. Barbara was still alive. Left to their own devices, Finch and Tregoff hatched a plan to get rid of Barbara and make it look like an accident. Everything, however, didn't go to plan. Like an episode of Perry Mason, this is a story that captured the imagination and headlines of a nation. So today we have the pleasure of having Steve Kosareff, right? Is that, yes, did I, get, get right. the, I didn't butcher your name, okay? No, no. <laughs> the author of Satin Pumps, The Moonlit Murder That Mesmerized the Nation. So welcome, Steve. Well, thank you, it's my pleasure. Welcome. Well, we're going to just go right into it, Steve, because this book is so fascinating. So, Steve, you have a very direct connection to this case. Dr. Fitz, yes, I do. He actually delivered you. Yes, as a baby. <laughs> as a baby. <laughs> so maybe you could just talk to us about how connected you are to this case and what drew you to it. Well, you know, over the years and actually the decades, it crossed our minds. You know, I, when my mother was still alive, we would occasionally talk about it and so on. And 
at one point I found out that she really didn't have a lot of information and she was sort of led to believe the popular belief that the uh, murder was actually an accidental shooting. And, you know, as time went by and I started to think about this and started to do my research, I found out that it was completely far from what she was thinking at that point. I had thought about doing this story, writing it over the past couple of years, and it wasn't until I met a producer from Law and & Order. And I thought, well, you know, I've got a couple ideas germinating here. I think I'll, I'll do something for him. And I thought the Finch case was probably the most commercially feasible. So I actually wrote a treatment for a television series and submitted it. And as happens in Hollywood, he was busy with his own project. So I'm left holding this treatment. And I thought, you know, I think there's a book in here. So I went back to the drawing board and did a lot more research. And this time I did genealogical research, which was just amazing. It really gave me a lot of background information on the characters, which I didn't have when I was writing the treatment, which really gives a color and a depth to this story. And, and I was able to weave my personal story as a patient of Dr. Finch's. Our family, we went to see Dr. Finch for, I think, about eight years before this murder happened after he delivered me from the time that he murdered his wife. And I remember him, you know, I was old enough. I remember him and Carol Tragoff. I remember the exam rooms. They were very small, brick-walled, and they had like saloon-style swinging doors. So there really wasn't a lot of privacy, you know, if you wow. had to take off your clothes for anything in here. And Carol Tragoff, the one thing that I remember her, other than that she was beautiful, is that as she stood behind him, she was writing notes furiously. And she, as it turned out, I later found out she had uh, almost like a photographic memory, which really suited her in the job. And this was a woman who had not gone to college. She had just graduated high school. So we have a million okay, questions. So why don't for we you. start off? Because I mean, obviously, the <laughs> listeners aren't familiar with the story at all. So why don't we just start off talking about Dr. Finch? And he was deeply rooted in this com in the community. Yeah, in the city of Covina, his Covina. grandfather was one of the founding fathers of the city of Covina, which is in the eastern San Gabriel Valley, located about twenty miles east of Los Angeles. And Covina was a, a citrus town. In fact, uh, Finch's grandfather was involved in a citrus processing plant at one point. And you have to imagine Southern California was were a lot of orchards. It was a very agricultural area at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, Finch's uh, father uh, eventually became an optometrist. And the city, uh, the family had very deep roots in the in the city. Uh, they were admired by the community. The Finch name was well known. And Finch was very close to his family uh, through high school, college, and medical school. He was always nearby. He was never beyond a day's drive from his family. And uh, he met his future partner in the West Covina Medical Clinic, uh, Franklin Gordon, at medical school. And Franklin Gordon ended up marrying his oldest sister, uh, Marion. And so they were a very tight family. And everything just sort of, the, the stars aligned for them right after World War II. Uh, you're looking at uh, post-war uh, post America, there was a lot of money, a lot of booming families, a lot of booming businesses. The suburbs are going up in, in the San Gabriel Valley. And Finch and Gordon decided they were going to open a medical clinic. 
and uh, they built the West Covina Medical Clinic, which was right off where the imprint for the San Bernardino Freeway would be, which was the main artery to, to San Bernardino and Palm Springs. And as I said in the book, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. They just couldn't do any wrong because there was a need for medical care and they own their own medical clinic. They had other doctors working for them, but they were the partners. And eventually uh, they got loans to uh, build a hospital right next door. So they were doing pretty well. Uh, about that point, Finch built a hilltop home in West Covina for he and his second wife, Barbara. And they eventually moved in there where they had a son. Uh, she moved her daughter from a previous marriage in there. And things just be, seemed to be going peachy keen at that point. Now, uh, the just to back up a little bit, so West Co or Covina or West Co Covina. Was... Actually, they're two separate cities. Right. And uh, Covina is sort of where he is where he grew up. West Covina is where he moved to in his new hilltop home and where the medical clinic was. And they're they, adjacent. They were really revered in the community, weren't they? They were members of all the right clubs. And... Yeah, they uh, they uh, were a member of the Los Angeles Tennis Club, which had a lot of celebrity, high celebrity profile there. Uh, the Los Angeles Tennis Club was, uh, was the president was uh, Cornwell Jackson, who was Earl Stanley Gardner's literary agent. Earl Stanley Gardner was the creator of Perry Mason. Right. And uh, the uh, Cornwell Jackson's wife was Gail Patrick Jackson, who had been a, an actress in the 30s and 40s. And she now was looking at going to television production. And they formed a company called Paisano Productions, the three of them, Earl Stanley Gardner, Cornwell and Gail formed this company to produce a Perry Mason television series. And uh, they created this pilot in 1956, which is really kind of a, a, a film noir. And they managed to sell CBS on that. And, and you pretty much know the rest what happened to this. Uh, while the Finches were members of the tennis club, they were pretty friendly with the Jacksons. And uh, so that's where that connection uh, is. So, and uh, so, um, so, so, so things are, so things are going along and I mean, so, so Dr. Finch is, is not, is not really, I wouldn't say, I mean, he's a happy man. He, he's, he's still, he's still, I mean, he cheated on, he's cheated on all, he's cheated on Barbara and yeah, he's, he had, he had a history of womanizing right? He's, and I couldn't find any evidence of it at the various medical clinics and hospitals he worked at before he opened his own. But once he opened his own, it came up in the various trials that he had been using his medical clinic as a dating pool. Right. And the women, uh, you know, he was handsome. He was charismatic. He was wealthy. He had a great position. I mean, it's like everything, you know, a woman who probably didn't have a career was looking for an husband at the time and they he had a lot of women at the medical clinic jostling to have dates with him yeah, uh, as it, it were it didn't seem to be a huge secret i mean but... no no barbara was aware of it in fact she that's how she came to be the second mrs right, right. <laughs> she had actually uh been a patient of his and then she, after she gave birth, she started working for him as his medical secretary, right. like Carol Tregoff would. So she set the footprint for this. And 
what's interesting is that Finch and his first wife uh, ended up moving right next door to Barbara and her husband. Mm. Now, what are the odds of that just happening, the coincidence? It couldn't have been. And there has to have been some way that, that Barbara and Finch engineered this move or Finch and his wife next door to Barbara and her husband. It's bizarre. Uh, yeah, it is. And uh, my thinking is at this point, then, you know, an affair began between them. And I visualized the uh, Finch's wife and Barbara's husband, Lyle, you know, like commiserating, like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, they're, how, how late can they be every night, you right. know? And uh, so eventually, uh, you know, she, they wanted a divorce from their respective uh, spouses. Barbara got hers first. Uh, as a condition of that, Lyle, her husband, managed to retain uh, uh, custody of their daughter, Patty. And it was actually said in their divorce agreement, if she married Finch, which she eventually did, he would get custody of Patty. Mm. And so that ha- that's how that came about. And, uh, you know, I, Bar- as I mentioned in the book, Barbara had, uh, she had been wealthy at one point in her life. Her father owned a custom shoe store in Beverly Hills. They had money. And then due to the depression, they ended up losing everything. Her parents got divorced. Her father started drinking heavily. She ended up living, I think, in the Palmdale area. And things just didn't look good. And she ended up marrying Lyle, who was an auto mechanic. And when she met Dr. Finch, I think he she thought that he was her ticket out of Baldwin Park, where they were living, and kind of a a lower middle class existence that would never go anywhere else. Uh, She was ambitious. And once she became the second Mrs. Finch, she uh, she was the life in the bell, life of the party, the bell of the ball. Uh, Yes. The, the, the queen of West Covina, right? The queen of West Covina. <laughs> and she doesn't and, want to let go of that once she finds out he's having an affair with... Well, uh, I, 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 have to th- I have to think, you set it up very nicely in the book, that I think she's aware that he's been having, an, having affairs. Along comes Carol Tregoff, who is this beautiful auburn-haired 22-year-old knockout who, you know, who Dr. Finch takes on as his his secretary and Barbara's not happy about that. No. She sees the writing on the wall, right? I, I think the other women were sort of, you know, the shiny new things. And as once he was done with them, he'd move on to the next one. But I think she was really afraid of Carol Tregoff. There was just something about her that wasn't like the other women. And uh, so she, you know, was really afraid of that. Uh, she wanted to stay being Mrs. Finch. Finch at this point was worth about uh, what would be $6 million. And and so there was a lot of money. And and like you mentioned, due to the community property laws, if she could prove uh, that he was having an affair, if there was adultery, without the community property laws in California at the time, she could theoretically end up with everything. And, you know, when uh, Finch and Carol were looking at the relationship, taking it further, they obviously realized this. And at this point, Barbara uh, had had enough of Finch. And finally, 
at some point she filed for divorce and Finch was not happy about this. And he not only became verbally, but physically abusive. Mm -hmm. He would go over to the house and work her over and then leave her, you know, hoping to scare her into submission. And uh, she was a fighter, you know, she held her ground. She went to a divorce attorney and he took photographs of her with a stitches over her head and had stories. So they were racking up evidence. They had actually hired a private investigator who followed Finch and Carol, who by at this point had set up a love nest. Uh, they had a series of three apartments and uh, they actually bugged the apartments and they recorded them, you know, and I could never locate whether the tapes still exist, but it'd be pretty interesting if they did. Oh, for pretty sure. damn. <laughs> yeah. and, and they were they did exist at the time of the first trial. They were entered as evidence. So it's likely the jury might have heard them. Wow. And, and they would have been pretty damning. Carol herself was also married at that time. Yeah. As well. And, yeah. Yeah. Jimmy Papa, he was a culture model and a bodybuilder. And and uh, Carol had thought of modeling at one point. But Jimmy thought, well, there's only room enough for one model in this family. And it's me. And uh, he was just he was sort of oblivious to, to everything else going on around him except himself. And it was actually Barbara who had, on a number of occasions had to convince him that there was a relationship going on. And. At one point, she has him come over there and he tells her, well, I've heard about these stories of them being seen together in Palm Springs. And he says, there's a good reason, you know, they might have been seeing a patient there. And, you know, Barbara <laughs> looked at him like, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that wasn't the case. And at one point when he I believe it, that was that occasion when he drove back he actually started to think about this and started to add things up and he was really mad at this point and she came home and uh you know he demanded to know what was going on and she refused to acknowledge anything and uh he went to work the next day comes back that evening opens the door and the house is cleaned out of everything, including her, her wardrobe, the furniture. So a couple of days after that, he ends up going to West Covina Medical Clinic to confront them. And I can only imagine what that meeting was like among the three of them behind closed doors. And I believe that Dr. Gordon at that point, if he didn't hear it directly, he heard it from all the employees there. And he knew at that point he had to do something. And they start, they, uh, uh, I believe he had a meeting with the board and they cut back Finch's day-to-day -day patient activities. Right. So this way he could not see women patients and he could not be around a lot of the female employees. And he ended up doing more surgery than, than patient, uh, you know, exams. And that's about the, and I think at that time, what he, they ended up doing, I think West Covina Medical Clinic sent a letter to all their patients and it said, Dr. Finch is cutting back his, uh, you know, his patient exams, uh, seeing patients, so on. And you need to choose another doctor here. And that's how we ended up in my house with Dr. Gordon. And instead of Dr. Finch delivering my second sister, Debbie, as he would have, Dr. Gordon did that. And the timing is interesting because right at that point, the when my sister was delivered on October 21st, 1958, November 1st is when everything changed uh, as far as Dr. Finch, when they ended up, uh, he uh, sent him a letter and told him that if his womanizing 
uh, created a problem, they would basically fix him, fix his wagon, you know, as far as the, the hospital and the medical clinic went. But womanizing wasn't the only problem for Dr. Finch. He had, an, he had about 11 medical malpractice suits. Yeah, that was, well. that was another thing. And it's interesting. Yeah. It didn't seem to affect uh, his long-term uh, medical career. And it also leads me to believe that he became a doctor not because he wanted to help people, because it was sort of a road to riches for him. Right. And I point out a number of the medical practice. I actually have, I'm actually a victim of that. Uh, when I was two years old, I was having trouble breathing. And he suggested that where we lived at the time in Pico Rivero near the Rio Hondo River was causing that and that removing my tonsils would ease that breathing issues. So he removes my tonsils. But as we found out later on, he did not get all of them. I still to this day have the roots of my tonsils due to Dr. Finch. Oh, and I was one of the lucky ones. I, there were actually a couple children who had major uh, uh, surgery where uh, there was a girl who had an appendectomy and the stitches came undone. And he took almost, you know, six hours to get to the hospital to operate on her. And she almost died. Mm. There was actually a boy who was treated for tomaine poisoning, got locked jaw. He had been to the medical clinic a couple times. They did not catch it. And his family finally took him to USC Medical uh, Center, and he ended up dying there. Hmm. So there were definitely 11 uh, malpractice suits that we know of that were recorded that he was either directly involved in or indirectly through other doctors in the medical clinic. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It just amazes me that he was called out on his behavior with women because it was so permissive at the time. Right. I mean, to how you could behave was so... But yeah. It shows how extreme it was if he was <clears throat> well, out on right. it. It's just like, yeah. oh, that's the doctor. You yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. Like, talk, a, talk about your white male privilege. Yeah. He was a straight, <laughs> handsome, wealthy man in the 1950s who got away. Well, I was going to say with murder, which is what happened. But he had a, a history of drunken driving. It wasn't only the women. It was right. he would drink and drive. He had this beautiful 1957 uh, 300, Chrysler 300C red convertible. The car could do 130 miles an hour off the production mm -hmm. line. And he was driving around. And the police would pull him over. And once they'd see who it is, they'd let him go. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that still happens to an extent today. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so he had basically a license to do whatever he wanted. And he was, uh, you know, he was the king of the San Gabriel Valley, as I call him at that time. And we see this a lot in our cases, you know, I think uh, with privilege, with money, with uh, looks. And I mean, anybody, everyone should go out and get this book because it's fascinating. But you also have to see the pictures. I mean. Everybody is so great looking. Oh, they're so I mean, good. Every, this is like one. I mean, I can see the appeal of this case. It, it just, the they, masses. I mean, they all look like movie stars. They all look like movie stars. <laughs> yeah, there is not a homely person in the Dr. Finch murder case. No, I mean, you, I mean, when you're reading, and I love that you included pictures because it's like so fascinating, and you're reading, and then you look at these people, and it's like, wow, you are. It is looking at like looking at a old movie magazine. But I mean, every. Everybody, Dr. Finch, Barbara's gorgeous. Uh, Jimmy Papa is yeah, very handsome, uh, you know, and not let alone Carol, who like basically I think got kind of celebrity status from her. She did, you know, she was, 
she was sort of the Kardashian of her time. A lot of people are not aware of this trial because, you know, 60 years, it's sort of faded, but it was the O.J. Simpson trial of its time yes. uh, from 1959 to 1961. Uh, there were this not only achieved local notoriety, but national and international uh, the Hearst Syndicate sent Dorothy Kilgallen, who was uh, known for What's My Line as a panelist, but she was also a crime journalist along with her Broadway Hollywood column. And she would fly out uh, on uh, Sunday night after the show to be in the courtroom in Los Angeles Monday morning. And she would stay there, then fly out back Friday night to back to New York for the show. And this was her first major criminal trial since the Sam Shepard case five years earlier. And uh, as you uh, probably, I, I don't know if I have a photo in the book of her with, with Finch, but there are photos of them together. Yes, I've, I've seen, actually, your book first came under my radar because I was reading a book on Dorothy Kilgallen and the case is mentioned mm -hmm. in the book on her, you know, there's a book about several books on Dorothy Kilgallen, but th this case Finch is mentioned many times. Whenever you read about Dorothy Kilgallen, it's one of the major trials she covered. She played, she had a major role in this, yeah. a lot of behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about. And I can talk about that now yeah. if you want or, or later. Yeah, let, maybe we should get back to what, let's get back to, so yeah, let's let, get back to, so so Barbara and, and Dr. Let's get back to their marriage. Yeah, so, so Barbara filed for divorce after all of these, uh, after all of this abuse. Uh, she documented it. And from what I gathered from your book, it, she, the court actually gave her the financial control uh, to the point where where Bernard Finch had to go and ask her for money if he, yeah. if he and I'm sure he hated this. Oh so. boy, did he, man! He yep. this is it's about the worst thing they could have done to uh, add fuel to the fire because he was already mad at her, and so now he's fuming. She controls the purse strings, you know. She's paying the bills. She's seeing them where the money goes, but she still at the time did not really know how much he was actually worth, and she and her divorce mm -hmm. attorney came up with high and low and they figured at the time that he was worth they they came to kind of a happy medium of three quarters of a million dollars which is about six million dollars today they weren't really sure because he had a lot of properties and they didn't know the depth of his investments because he kept everything you know on the qt and so now finch is having to get take handouts and at one point he, he and carol decided that they were going to hire uh, a hitman. They that had enough, and so he wrote a check for three thousand dollars and forged Barbara's name on it. And he couldn't do more because she might have seen it. And the bank had actually questioned the check initially, and he had to go down there, and they did finally approve it. But a good portion of that money ended up uh, is what Carol. Tregoff used when she moved to Las Vegas. At this point, she had cleared out of town. She ended up uh, resigning from her job as Finch's secretary. And she moved to Las Vegas because they were afraid that she was going to be named a correspondent in the Finch divorce case. So she took up a job uh, at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas as a cocktail waitress. And Finch would drive up there, you know, on weekends or whatever to visit with her. And at the same time she was there, she was also supposed to, you know, 
get feelers for. She's looking for, they're looking for a hitman. And uh, they're doing it as subtly as they can. And she's got a friend, childhood friend that she has. And so, you know, they're, Finch and Carol aren't street smart, street smart criminals. And they didn't have a lot of money. And as I mentioned in the book, the obvious place for them to have gone to at the time was the Sands Hotel. It was mob connected. She could have, you know, asked a couple people there and probably gotten a high quality hitman. Instead, she ends up meeting this guy named Jack Cody, who's somebody who somebody knows. And Jack Cody impresses her. She's a little leery of him. She's not quite sure that he's the real deal. But he manages to dangle enough information in front of her that she comes back for more. And finally, she agrees. And she gives him 50% of the fee that they agree on, which is less than $2,000. And Jack Cody is not a killer by any means. He's a con man. And he's actually on the lam from Minnesota for writing a bad check. And uh, But he's a big talker. And he's one of the, the great characters in the story. Yes. Um, so. And so he tells her that he kills Barbara. Yeah, right? they actually, they set a date. Uh, all the participants are supposed to, on the July 4th weekend, uh, Finch is going to be in La Jolla at a doubles tennis match. Carol's in Las Vegas working. And Jack Cody, they put him on a plane, fly him to Los Angeles. He's supposed to kill Barbara, who was staying with a friend of hers at, a, at an apartment building in Hollywood. And he's supposed to shoot her with a shotgun, put her body in the trunk and whatever. And Jack Cody is no murderer. He just basically takes the money and parties in Los Angeles that week and then flies back to Las Vegas. And so uh, Carol, she wants to know, did you do the job? You know, and he goes, yeah, sure. Sure, I did it. Uh, I shot her and I put her body in the trunk. He he's, so, he's kind of a he, he's kind of an underachieving hitman. Is that yeah, what, you're, yeah. what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, he tells people whatever they want to hear, you know. Yeah. And uh, so Finch uh, meets up with Carol and Barbara at one point, and he. But before he does, he ends up. He you know he's a little suspicious, so he calls his home, and guess what? Barbara answers the phone. She's very much alive. So when he meets up with, with Carol and Cody, he says, uh, well, what happened? She's alive. And Cody says, well, I shot her. I, I shot some woman and put her body in the trunk. And at that point, Finch believes it's actually her friend that he shot. And he says, you got to go back and do it right. And so they end up, you know, they put him on a plane again. And he's drunk after they've been partying with him. Oh, God. And uh, basically uh, what he does this time, not only does he party and spend the money, but he ends up, uh, I think he, he took a bus back and he ends up gathering his items and he and a friend get out of town. And now Carol and Finch are left holding the bag and they decide they've got to take care of this business themselves. So on uh, the evening of July 18th, 1959, after Carol gets off of work, she stops by her apartment and picks Finch up, and they drive in her to Soto, the five-hour drive to West Covina. And uh, when they get there, Barbara isn't there. So they wait on the front lawn in the dark. Moonlight's pretty bright, but they, he's, Finch has actually pulled the plug on a floodlight to their property, so they basically can't be seen. <laughs> 
Barbara had been out to playing tennis, uh, ten doubles uh, tennis match that day. She had cocktails and dinner later with some friends, and she drives the Chrysler back uh, to the to the home. She pulls into the garage. She turns off the engine, but the key's still in ignition. The lights and the radio are still on. And and and, so, and, and Steve, can I stop you for a second? So, what sure. is what is their plan? Though, what is the the proposed plan for well, the, their for plan the... is to actually neutralize Barbara, uh, inject her with secanol, and then an air bubble to kill her. They're going to place her body in the car and send it over a ravine, which is right next to the garage on the property, to make it look like an accident, as though she was drunk and she missed. You know, she's on drugs. She's on secanol. She missed the garage and she went over the the ravine and and uh, you know and died. And if for whatever reason, I don't know if you, you want me to go on from here. Yeah, sure, oh, yeah, sure. Please. Just yeah. I just wanted to set up what the plan was. Yeah, that know, was so, her plan. Yeah. That yeah. was her plan. They had actually uh, bought a, a variety of various items, and this would prove damning. It would later be called the the uh, murder kit. And in this bag, they had a flashlight, they had rope, they had the second all in various forms, they had syringes, they had. Uh, uh, gloves and uh, this and Carol Finch actually uh, as he initially went up to the property first he had Carol wait in the car down below and then gave her the all the okay once nobody was around to come up so she brought the medical bag and her carrying that medical bag would also play a major part in the trial in her conviction because sure. it would show that she was involved as a conspirator in this in this murder so she, they're up there waiting for about probably not long probably about five minutes though they claimed it was longer when barbara drives in and there's a crucial point right now as bar as finch comes up behind barbara uh he was supposed to neutralize her so they could inject her but instead his anger gets the best of him and he whatever it is he loses control and he hits her with the butt of the gun and he knocks her initially stuns her gives her a concussion and she falls to the garage floor, but she gets up and she starts to fight back. And then he hits her again. And at, in between, she is called out for uh, Marie Ann, who is their 19 uh, year old Swedish nanny who is getting ready for bed. And she hears Barbara scream and comes running out to the garage and burst in and turns the lights on. And at that point, Barbara's on the ground, Finch lunges for Marie Ann, shoves her up against the wall and knocks her head into the garage wall a number of times so hard that there is an indentation in the plaster. This stuns Marianne, who slides down to the floor. And once she sort of comes through, Finch demands that she get into the car. And just to, uh, as a warning, he shoots the gun off in the garage. Uh, Carol actually hears this, and she's been hiding out. And uh, there's a, a discrepancy as to what she claims she did next. We can talk about it a little later. but. Uh, Brianne, you know, uh, she gets into the back of the car like he orders the back seat. He drags Barbara into the front passenger seat and then he gets into the driver's seat himself and he demands Barbara give him the keys to the car because now at this point there's going to be two women who go over that embankment. And um, he grabs Barbara's purse, he dumps the contents onto the garage floor and he can't find the keys. And then it finally dawns on him 
that the keys are in the ignition, the headlights are on, and the radio's playing, and it's the only way it would work. So just as that happens, Barbara gets up and runs down the driveway. She comes to. Finch runs after her. Marie Ann gives Marie Ann time to get out of the car, run into the house to call police. Finch chases Barbara down the the um, the driveway. Now there's some discrepancy. He later claimed that he and Barbara struggled over the gun, and her her shooting was an accident. But what I believe is that she made a beeline. That he never struggled with her again. She made a beeline. Her in-laws' home was right on the other side of the Finch driveway. There were seven dirt steps down to the backyard. And I believe that as she started to go down those steps, he shot her in the back and she collapsed in her in-law's backyard and died. And uh, so that's how we are uh, up to that point. This is like a it's like a bad scene from a movie. I mean, it's like a scene from a movie, but like a like a Coen Brothers movie. I mean, about, it, you know. it, like a, it is. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. That's a very yeah, apt yeah. description because, you know, he's trying to avoid paying her. And I mean, it. The whole thing is such a mess. I mean, the minute the au pair comes into the scene, you almost think he would drop the whole thing and run because it's impossible for him to almost get get away with it once he has Marianne into the picture that he can control these two women. And I, it just astounds me when he shoots her in the back. He was such a narcissist and so full of himself that I... Th- and with his history of never having to, to pay any kind of price for his malpractice, for his womanizing, for his drunk driving, I think he just assumed he wasn't even thinking. He was just going to get them out of the way, squash right. them like bugs. And, uh, he, you know, he was his better judgment. If he had it was surely not there that night. Yeah, well, he's a man and, who never had any consequences in his life. Yeah, yeah, no, and he was a golden boy. You know, his sure. family loved him. They supported him. Uh, I th- believe that they were the ones who set his path to become a doctor. And uh, he, you know, the he shined wherever he went, you know, and he never came across anything that prevented him from doing whatever he wanted. So Marie Ann calls the police, and the police come. Yeah. And uh, Carol Tragoff claims that she's been hiding in the Bougainvillea bush the whole time. And what's interesting is that uh, nobody really ever disputed that. You know, she stuck to that story and probably still does to this day. But during my research, I found maybe the first interview she gave with a reporter. And she actually says what I believe she did. And it makes the more it makes the most sense of her hiding in a bush for five hours before she took off. Um, I believe that at the first shot, she left the property and she was halfway down to the car when she heard the second shot that actually killed Barbara. She jumped in her DeSoto and she took off. Yeah. Um, she claims that she had stayed in the bush and she didn't leave till after the police uh, till she had a break. Uh, the police showed up about 10 minutes later. And Finch is gone too. <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me. And I believe at that point, uh, they never did find the gun. They never did find the bullet or the shell casing. I think that he went to Barbara's body. He picked up the shell casing and the bullet. He went back to the garage, scooped up her purse and the contents, and then he took off. And he had enough time to do it. And he made a hasty retreat running through the furrows of the orange groves that still remain at the below at the South Hills Country Club, where he and Barbara were members. He ended up stealing two cars to uh, make his getaway. And uh, the second car 
he drives to the West Covina uh, Medical Clinic, and which is really odd. I it mean, is odd. Good. You want to get away, you don't drive to your medical clinic where you can be seen possibly by people, even though it's probably about one o'clock in the morning. And uh, that's when he is leaving in the uh, stolen car. Uh, he's spotted by police who at this point now have been alerted to him, a patrolman, and they see him and they give chase. He jumps on the San Bernardino freeway and he's speeding towards Los Angeles. And by now there's about 20 police cars chasing him. Wow. And somehow he manages to get off the freeway and come back around, headed back towards Las Vegas. And the police don't see him. What they find is they see a very similar looking Cadillac driving down. They give chase and they run this car off the road. Their guns are drawn. They fling open the door. And there's this elderly woman behind the wheel who must have been scared out of her mind. Wow. You know. And uh, at, by this point, Finch makes his way back, as did Carol, to Las Vegas mm -hmm. the following morning. This it really, it, I mean, hopefully this will be a screenplay. I mean, <laughs> it's great. I mean, or a Perry Mason episode. You wouldn't believe it. You know, steal two I, cars, run away, dispose of the weapons. At the, at, there's a lot of action on this. That's for sure. No, I mean, it doesn't sound like it. I mean, they always well, truth is stranger than fiction. But I, I mean, if somebody wrote this, I, I mean, if it was, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah, but it, yeah, but, it, but, it, but it's 1959 too. It's not. Yeah. You know, this is right. this is. I mean, that's you know, what makes it so so wild. Wild. Yeah. Absolutely. And then he goes, and then they go back to Vegas, which is so bizarre to me. Like, and she goes back to work. She goes back to work in the like morning. Like nothing happened. I like mean, nothing happened. And, and he goes to sleep, like takes a nap. Yeah, but she does. The the Las Vegas sheriffs have been alerted to it. It's a very small department at the time. And if you know any Las Vegas history, at the time in the late 1950s, Las Vegas, with even though it had a number of casinos, was still like a small town. Yeah. You know? Pretty much everybody knew everybody there. And uh, the sheriffs had been tipped off that she was working at the Sands Hotel. And uh, they, uh, 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 Sheriff Stephanie drove over there and spoke to her and asked her where Dr. Finch was. And she gave him up. She said, well, he's sleeping in my apartment. So they go over there and he calls for backup. He and his partner go over there. And the landlady lets him in, and there's Finch sleeping in the nude in her bed, and they got to roust him from bed. <laughs> and they arrest him at that point and haul him into the sheriff's department for questioning. About 90 minutes later, Carol's shift has ended. Now she's in the bed sleeping, and they come back for her. And at this point, they know there's some connection, but they don't believe she has a direct involvement in a conspiracy to murder Barbara. So they do not arrest her, but they do question her, and uh, she makes a statement. And this will be known as Exhibit 60 and becomes very damning evidence, which is held back through uh, at least the first trial and is a key piece. Now, when the police show up at the Finch property, uh, early in the morning, uh, you know, they're scouting around looking for everything and they knock on Dr. Finch's, uh, father's door and he tells them that he thought he heard two, uh, you know, either a car backfiring twice or two cars backfiring. And I think he was well aware of, uh, the, the, combustible relationship his daughter-in-law and Finch had. And I don't really think he wanted to admit to himself that it was actually a shooting. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And he still didn't know when he saw the police cars on the property what they were there for. But what's interesting is that early that morning, about six o'clock in the morning when he got up, and even with the police presence, he walks over to his son's property and he finds the murder kit that they left, that Carol Tregoff left on the front lawn, along with an alpine hat that Finch had picked up. He picks those up. He goes into the house. And he may still be believing that this was a burglary or robbery attempt. For whatever reason, he goes to where they hide the valuables, which is in the silverware tray. He finds Barbara's wedding rings, and he pockets those. And he puts the silverware tray back. So now he's he decides to. There's nobody in the house. the uh, The kids are are left, and uh, they're staying with relatives at this point. And so he picks up the the uh, murder kit, the alpine hat, and the rings, and he walks right back to his home. And he does not give them immediately to the police. He waits a couple of days before he finally does it. And I still thinking hope against hope that uh, what he gave the police would not be any evidence in, a, in his daughter-in-law's death. And he does say something that's very damning to the police at that point. And he mentions that Dr. Gordon said that Finch was acting crazy and that Finch should have been uh institutionalized at that point or had been seeing a therapist and he says he just can't believe that finch shot his daughter-in-law barbara in the back and i mean to have your own father say that yeah. about you you know it's not very supportive and at this point finch didn't know that he was in the Covina jail he had been returned to the area and was sleeping in the Covina jail at that point and was getting ready to go to his hearing. In it, how would the father know that detail, though? Had he read in the in the paper? What, what was that? Just from talking to the police, who were I, I believe at that point he knew that she was had been shot in the back and died. Okay, okay. died as a result. Gotcha. And uh, and I think you know he was actually you know he was jumping the gun here too, so to speak. He uh, was. He didn't know that his son did that. He had no proof. But I think that he was so distraught, and he loved his daughter-in-law. Right. I think that he just lost it. He had been protecting him up to the point that he gave the uh, the murder kit. And what's interesting is that I found through the murder trials, the police actually lied on the stand. They claimed that they either found the murder kit or that Finch gave it to him that very morning. And that was not the case. He held on to it because the police did not want to appear that they bungled this case. Right. right. And even to this day, I tried to get the West Covina police to, to allow me to look at the microfilm files and they would not do it because I think that's what I would have found out. But I, you know, eventually did by reading, uh, you know, the tra the transcripts and the newspaper accounts. It, but they were they were only covering up the fact that they had a piece of evidence in plain sight that was not picked yeah, up. Yeah, they were, process, you know, they were like idiots. They right. they were police on. There was a police presence on the the grounds for at least twenty four hours from the time they initially arrived after Barbara was shot, mm -hmm. and yet none of no patrolman, no officer found that evidence, which right. is clearly out in the open. It was sort of to the side lawn but if they had actually searched the grounds they would have found it and and surprising that uh surprising that that uh that dr finch would have left that after being so meticulous about picking up the casings picking up the purse contents you know that he would leave the kind of the murder kit is is bizarre to me you know not they're not the criminals of the century 
those two. No, no. And I, I, think he, <laughs> yeah, I think he actually forgot about that. He was so intent on getting the bullet, the shell casing of the purse, he didn't think about that. Right. He might have also assumed that because Carol was in charge of that, that she had actually taken that with her. And I believe that's probably what he thought. He wasn't, and plus he was running out of time. He knew the police would show up, so he couldn't spend a whole lot of time. I'm actually surprised he spent as much time as he there trying to cover his tracks. And, uh, you know, he never admitted to that. Uh, they, like I said, they never did find the gun, though I talk about it at the end of the book, my scenario as to what I believe happened to her purse, the gun and the shell casing and the bullet. Which I think is a good scenario. So once he's arrested, things kind of switch gear and then we're kind of going, you know, more now towards headed towards trial. And, you know, he he gets a high profile attorney. So does she. So, yeah. Yeah. The hearing was pretty amazing. The hearing had its. Uh, yeah. Maybe we could uh, talk about it. Hanger moment, too. Yes. Um, uh, first of all, the attendance uh, by over the weekend, and because the Finches were members of the Los Angeles Tennis Club, Gail Patrick Jackson heard about this. It was on the news at that point, on radio and TV and newspapers. So she and her husband went to the first hearing in West Covina. And, 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 and these are the Perry Mason people, basically. These are the Perry so, Mason people, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. She's also, besides friends of the Finches, she's probably thinking, hey, I'm going to get some story material here so they're there uh carol and her mother her stepmother who she's very close to uh show up uh she's going she ends up testifying on the stand and what happens at this point uh is that finally the assistant district attorney gets enough comes to the conclusion that she's directly involved in this and uh just as carol finishes her testimony on the stand the judge looks over to uh the ada and he says well uh she's done i'm assuming she can go now and uh the district attorney says i'm sorry your honor we're going to arrest her as soon as she steps off the stand and they do and the whole courtroom erupts because she's basically arrested just as she steps off the stand so why? And, what kind of legal advice was she getting that, that that she was able to even testify? That see, I, that's one of my questions. I mean, because it seems yeah, like the judge, uh, yeah, the judge Albert Miller. Uh, this was probably his highest profile case, and and he had only been on the bench five years, but he had been an attorney for many years, and he was in his mid sixties at this point, and he was kind of an old country style judge and he had uh he also he liked people and so he wanted to make sure everybody understood their rights and so on and when carol was initially testifying she broke down when the ada asked her about her relationship to finch she did not want to come out and say that they had had sex i mean in a way for a lot of women admitting you had extramarital sex was worse than claiming you murdered somebody at the time. Mm -hmm. And so to compose herself, the judge, El uh, Albert Miller, invited her and Carol's stepmother, uh, Gladys, into his chambers. And this is where he crossed the line. He said, you know, if you just tell them what they want to hear, you can go home. Mm -hmm. And this became a key, very key piece that was, was a major point in the trials to follow. And actually, uh, Judge Miller would end up testifying himself a number of times through the trials because of that. Uh, so she basically gets back up on the stand and admits to having sex. 
And then she gets arrested uh, in the course of the questioning right after she steps off the stand. And, you know, everyone believed that she was arrested due to the fact of what had happened in, in the, the judge's chambers at that point. And that was part of the Exhibit 60. And, uh, and at this point, I mean, look, she's a Carol, uh, Carol Tramoff is very, she, I'm sorry, I, I'm getting, I'm butchering the name. I'm Trina. sorry. Tragoff. Tragoff. I'm sorry. Carol Tragoff is very pretty. Is she dressed up now at this point? Is she in prison garb? Uh, it, what What are the optics on this? Well, because she gets I, out on bail, so she gets, well, she, yeah. Yeah, she looks better than most. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the first day of her testimony, she shows up wearing a pink <laughs> mink cuffed suit. It's a very expensive tailored suit. Now she works as a legal uh, as a medical secretary, and there's no way that she could really afford that. And uh, Barbara's friends and Marianne are there, and Marianne was very familiar with this suit. She had seen it in Barbara's closet. And so the women put their heads together, and they believe that Finch or Carol had managed to get into that closet and steal this dress. And when Finch is questioned about this later, he claims that uh, it's actually a second copy that that Barbara and Carol were two completely different sizes. It couldn't be the same dress. But there are famous photos of her wearing this mink cuffed suit. And she is kind of a fashionista. She dresses very well, uh, does her makeup. She does her own hair. And like I said, she's like one of the Kardashians, you know, she is a stunner. The camera loves her. The press loves her. Reporters, photographers cannot get enough photos of her. And in fact, the day that she is actually arrested, she is dressed up very well. And there's some famous photos of her with sunglasses. And I believe I have one of them in the book. Yeah, she's very glamorous. Yeah. So she's driven directly from the uh, uh, from the courtroom to Covina Jail because West Covina did not have holding facilities or, and, and booking facilities. So she's driven to Covina Jail. And there's some famous photos of her where she changes into the, you know, the jail clothes and they fingerprint her and so on. And there's a series of photos that uh, exist of her when that happened. And uh, so from that time on, when she's gone to county jail, uh, they take her back to West Covina where they put her in a holding cell. And so she ends up going back with Finch to Los Angeles County Jail when she's arrested. And Finch tries to sit right behind her, but he's prevented from doing that. And so this is her time. Uh, she's when she's brought from the jail, she's uh, wearing prison garb at that point. And an interesting thing, she has these red high heels and uh, they will not allow her another pair of shoes. So she's forced to wear these red high heels along with her prison garb because they've been told that there's a policy that if somebody brings in shoes for uh, somebody who's uh, been accused, that there might be narcotics hidden in the heels of the shoes. And I don't know if that's something that's true to this day, but I thought that was kind of interesting to find that they thought she might be passing narcotics. They they might be more afraid that it would be used as a weapon or something like that. <laughs> you know, no, but that that that's the name of your your book is satin pumps. Satin so, pumps, yeah. It actually it so, refers actually to Barbara's shoes. To Barbara's she was white, white satin, satin pumps, pumps white that right. she was murdered. Okay. And, just to show what an athlete Barbara was, how strong she was, is that this woman has at least two 
concussions. She received a third, but they think it was post-mortem. Finch wanted to make sure she was dead when she fell into the backyard. But on her rundown, she's wearing these white scent pumps. And as if you've worn high heels, as you probably have, and you're running, you know it's not an easy thing to run in high heels, especially down a driveway. So she ends up breaking the heel one of the shoes. So now she's running in basically one full heel and the remains of another shoe, which she loses. As she goes down the steps after she's been shot, the other shoe falls off her foot and it's fully intact. And that's where they find, uh, they do tag the evidence. And there is actually a very grainy photo that I found of uh, at least the intact high heel as evidence for it. It, it's like Cinderella's nightmare, really. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Running down the steps, this was just sure. the flip side of that, you know. It, but so let's let's cut forward. So what what is, um, so this case resulted in three, three trials, basically. Can you Yeah, three of, trials. Can, there was a, there was thought that there might go to a fourth, which would have been a first oh. in California. So, so why does why does this case, which seems pretty open and shut, I mean, this was a very sloppy murder. He's got motive. He's got, you've got, you've got Barbara Finch telling everybody he's going to kill me. He's attacking me. He's, you know, why did this? Why why does it boil down to three three trials? Well, Finch actually testifies on his behalf, and it actually works in his favor during the first trial. Uh, he's quite a charmer, quite a storyteller. And in fact, there are a couple women on the jury who are crying when they're listening to him retell his story, how his wife accidentally died in his arms after being shot in the back. <laughs> yeah. It's laughable. You yeah. Know? Now, he claims that the gun that the he that the, during the struggle, he got control of the gun again and he threw it down and it discharged and hit her in the back. And he ran after her as she died in his arms. And she said she was sorry, Bernie, take care of the kids for me and right. this, you know this deathbed confession as it were and these women you know it's about as melodramatic and really unbelievable as it could be but these people are buying it particularly these women on the jury uh what people didn't know is that behind the scenes is that also uh, on the jury there were some people of color which was somewhat unusual for a, a, a basically a substantially white populace and for a, a white uh, you know white man like finch and there was actually an african-american man in his early 30s he was a postal employee and then a latino man and there was also a white woman on there, and she was somewhat of a racist, probably just this side of having clan membership. And then there were fights among them, really not about the the trial and the and the evidence they were supposed to be looking at, but it was really it was really over racism. And uh, it got to the point where this woman claimed that these men, one of them, threatened her with physical harm, actually came over, picked up a chair, and threatened to break a window and throw her out the window. And at this point, these two men decided to join forces, and they thought they were going to teach these people a lesson. And what initially during the first voting might have convicted Finch and Carroll on some level actually ended up becoming a mistrial because these guys became the holdouts. And not too many people knew about this except Dorothy Kilgallen. 
And she had a mole in the jury that was leaking information to her. And she covered the trials. And at the end, when it was called a mistrial, the jury was released. She waited outside the, the, the courthouse on the sidewalk, and she waited for the jurors to come out. And when she spotted these guys, she called them over to her. And she says, you want to get home, don't you? And they said, yeah. And she managed to talk them into you know, going for a ride with her. She had beforehand knowledge of where the taxi phone was, which was hidden behind them, a bush. So she goes over there and this is like her. Her bad She's amazing. She called this <laughs> taxi shows right up and she whisks these guys off to the ambassador hotel where they're staying and uh, they're having drinks in her suite and she's talking to them. And lo and behold, one of the guys whips out a journal that he's kept during the trial. So now she's got even more information. And uh, she reports a certain amount of this. Uh, she never admits to the racism, and nobody did at the point. But that's actually what caused the first trial to end in a mistrial. And what about the second trial? <laughs> the second trial was its own uh, was its own baby. Um, they found out that the the uh, the judge who had been assigned to it, uh, the defense attorneys were just adamant that they wanted to get rid of this uh, judge for whatever reason. He did have a high conviction rate. It's possible it was that, but it almost seemed to be something personal. And they tried to actually have him recalled to, to, to be pulled off the seat. And I think it made this judge mad. He was pissed yeah. that they were going to, you know, that they were doing it. And I think he had his mindset that Finch was and Carol were going to be convicted no matter what, just based on that alone. Uh, they He ended up to the point where uh, the jury was again deadlocked during the second trial, and he called the jurors in, and he says, you know, I believe these two are guilty and that the minority should go with the majority and vote, you know, them convict them and the defense attorneys erupted you know they, they it, it, that's utterly inappropriate it was it's yeah. like it's like it's you know i don't know if it's ever been done before but it is not part of courtroom protocol for a judge to do that and uh you know grant cooper who was finch's high profile uh attorney uh was just up in arms about this and uh and yet uh the jurors went back and it didn't work they ended up voting it became a mistrial again after all that had been done so now they're headed for a third trial and uh we're going on a year at this point with this and uh, but also a lot of there'd been a lot of hoopla. It was a big circus. Uh, a, a lot of the public went to see this. There were lines early in the morning. Uh, people would sell their places in line for about uh, uh, what turned out to be about ninety dollars in today's dollars. And oh my God. Uh, and it was a major event. And you know you had reporters. Life magazine said Eric Ambler, the famous British crime author, to report on this trial uh it got a lot of radio press and television uh, airplay around the world and uh so uh during the third trial i think people finally started to tire of it and the the you know the the courtroom the the district attorney the um 
defense attorneys, they they wanted to hit reach a finish line. And I think they finally a, a lot of the stuff that had gone on the first two trials didn't happen. They were actually also in a smaller courtroom. And so uh, they it moved along pretty well. But the key thing here is that all the juries had gone to the Finch property to check out the, uh, uh, you know, the, the area where everything had occurred. And the third jury went back a second time. There was something that just didn't feel right. They never quite fully accepted Finch stories of how his wife died, that it was an accident. And what they finally did, they actually ended up recreating the position that he claimed his wife had, uh, you know, the struggle that they were in over the gun. A female jury portrayed Barbara and a male juror portrayed uh, uh, Finch. And I believe it was probably an adult version of Twister, you know, that old game. Right. They were in, they realized they were in a position that could not conceivably have happened. And also at this point, they also believed Jack Cody, who had testified at all the trials. This was, uh, um, you know, he he was many things. He was a con man. He would take your money. But during the trials, he actually told the truth. And this jury finally believed him. And I think that the fact that they believed Jack Cody and the, the fact that they believed that the Finch shooting was not accidental is what ultimately convicted them. Uh, Carol, uh, they ended up both getting life sentences. They could have gotten the gas chamber. That's it was amazing, a, yeah. It was a very real thing. And in fact, if you're familiar with some of the famous murders in the area at the time, um, or criminal cases, mm -hmm. is that Carol Chessman, who had fought off execution for 12 years just for rape, he hadn't actually murdered anybody, but he was on death row for rape. They had actually finally executed him right about this time. So there was it was in the back of everyone's mind that Finch and Carol could actually get the gas chamber. And the the interesting thing is that uh, the night that they were convicted, when they were returned to their jail cells, that very same day, um, Spade Cooley, who was a famous Western swing band leader who had a local TV show that was syndicated across the country, he had actually murdered his wife. And uh, I'm sure Finch heard about it through the grapevine. And so there's all this going on that sort of feeds this that could have colored the, uh, uh, the, the jury process. And once their conviction, they had to wait a week to go back to find out what was going to happen. And they were lucky. They ended up getting life sentences. Uh, Finch would breathe a sigh of relief because he thought he was going to die. But Carol, the, you know, the thing, first thing that comes out of her lips is, I'll be an old woman by the time I get out of here. And she was just devastated and basically ran out of the courtroom as much as she could. But that and, wouldn't be the case for her. She wouldn't be an old woman when she gets out. Well, if it was a full life sentence, they could have been. Right. But what happened is they ended up serving a certain amount of time. I think Finch served 11 years and she did eight. And she got out uh, in 1969. She changed her name. But old habits die hard. She went back to the Eastern San Gabriel Valley and she uh, had an, under an assumed name, she ended up working in the medical records department at Inner Community Hospital in Covina. She worked there for decades. She was promoted. She became the manager of the office. What's interesting is that all the employees there knew who she was, even though she had a name change, but they would wait until she was on vacation before they gossiped about her, but they would never talk to her about it. 
And she is still alive. She's uh, in her early 80s. She, I believe she's still living in the same area. There have been sporadic sightings of her over the years hmm. uh, in the area. And, uh, you know, she was a young woman at the time. I'm sure she's learned a lot of life lessons since then. Uh, once Finch got out of prison uh, after 11 years, uh, he was given a job offer as an x-ray technician in a small town of Missouri and went there for several years. He finally came back to California. He got his uh, a medical license back, this believe it or not. I, I don't understand that. This astounds me. How do you murder yeah. somebody and then get your medical license? And back? have 11, yeah. you know, medical malpractice, I, I, you know, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. I, that astounds me. Here's where 11 years comes into play. He got it back in 1984 and he practiced medicine for another 11 years until he died. He ended up moving to Rancho Mirage near Palm Springs. He and Carol loved that area. She used to love to go water skiing on Salton Sea. He moved to Rancho Mirage and he practiced medicine there for the last 11 years of his life till he died of natural causes. And, uh, you know, he never did reveal where the whereabouts of the gun were. Uh, and they never did reveal really what happened, uh, you know. And and he, and he and Carol went their separate ways pretty quickly. It wasn't yeah. like this was the, you know, the yeah. love, love that was going to endure, you know, yeah. all, all of this. And they really did. I think he was, he was open to, to being in a relationship with her, but I think she had her feel. You know, she was young and, you know, he was sort of the shiny thing and he lost his luster having gone through a murder trial with her. And even before she went off to prison, I think she was done with him. But they really did get away with murder. I mean, eight and 11 years is really nothing for, I mean, what, what for taking somebody's, I mean, she was shot in the back. Yeah, it was not, uh, you know, it was about as premeditated as it could have been because yes. they planned to go there to kill her one way or the other. It was first degree yeah. murder. I mean, it but, was planned. But, and, and why were the sentences so light, though? Well, she know that actually they were they were pretty heavy for her because she did not physically murder Barbara, but because she held uh, the the murder kit, they got her on conspiracy, and the conspiracy charge was just as bad as if she had murdered Barbara herself. I, I mean, I can see for her, but what about him, though? That's a pretty light sentence. I know you uh, talk about it in the book. But you know, I, just, I still yeah. think, you know, that he was a, pr a privileged white guy. And uh, I don't think they like to murder people then. You know, I think if he had been Carol Chessman, a poor guy was raped. It might have been a whole nother thing. But right. when it's a wealthy white guy, I think that's what ultimately saved his life. That, you know, that he got off with a life sentence. Uh but he was even worried. He thought he was finally, you know, he was worried that he was going to be going to the, get the gas chamber. So, uh, but here it is, wealthy white privilege again. That's what ultimately saved his life. Well, he was also able to afford a great defense, you know. Yeah, he ended huge up. huge difference between. Yeah, you know, he ended up losing everything. The ironical thing here is he should have taken his chances with Barbara and divorce. Yes. <laughs> they may not have given him 50% of everything. But he may have ended up with something, and he would not have ended up in jail. He could have married Carol. Instead, he ended up losing everything. Grant Cooper, his attorney, he assigned everything over to him, and it was a lot. There was the he, they Barbara's Cadillac, that '57 Chrysler, the Hilltop home, his uh, 50% ownership of West Covina Medical Clinic, Me uh, West Covina Hospital, West Covina Labs. 
They had other properties that were rentals. Uh, that's just the things off the top of my head. It was a lot. So basically you're looking at possibly what was $6 million worth of stuff. And, and, and they also had a son, right? They had Raymond. Yeah, yeah, and, Raymond. And so the tragedy in these cases is you lose a parent through murder and then you lose a parent through basically prison and prison and yeah yeah you know the pain of having is that you know rainy lived a few blocks from where i grew up oh no he kidding. ended up uh, finch's youngest sister jane lived literally a couple blocks down the road from my family and rainy ended up staying there a number of years i could trace him there through newspaper articles till probably about junior high school i well, the interesting thing is he should have been attending the school same schools that i went to but i don't ever remember you know he was too great two years younger than i was so I may not have known him for that, but I don't remember ever. Uh, I actually looked in a high school yearbook to see if he was in there uh, and I couldn't find him. Uh, and I don't believe if he was at the same elementary school that I went to, it might have been under an assumed name. Uh, but uh, I would love to find out at some point, you know, if I ever meet him to find out if he actually ever went to Charter Oak Elementary School, he got to have been two classrooms over from me. Wow. You may hear from him. I think this is such a yeah. great, uh, such a great book. And, and I think you show a lot of respect to everybody in it. And yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I didn't really want to say too much about the the, the kids because that's their private. Of uh, course. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, yeah. Good, yeah. yeah. The, and I try. I tried to present the the items as fairly as accurately as possible, and the conclusions I came to were based on facts. You know, yes. there are a couple of times I speculated about things about the conversation. One of the interesting things is they had a five hour drive from Las Vegas to West Covina. They could have changed their minds at any point. You know, that was a long time to stew about murdering somebody. You know, but they were so full of themselves. You know that that they couldn't see anything else. And I actually speculate what I think they might have talked about, and it's not pretty because they had a plan, you know, and I speculate about what they might've been thinking about their future together, you know? Sure. So. Yeah. And it, it, Steve, how do we find your book? How do we find you on social media? Yes. Can okay. you let our, our listeners know? Cause this is a wonderful book and highly, highly recommended. Yes. I think the easiest way is you just uh, Google satin pumps, true crime. And uh, you'll see all the there everything about the I've uh, got a couple a short promotional film that I made uh, that's on YouTube. Great. Uh, it's on Amazon. You can go directly to Amazon and Google Satin Pumps True Crime and the book. It'll pop up. You'll go right to the link. Um, you can it's available at uh, Barnes and Noble, too. Uh, there are other uh, sites. Uh, websites that you can purchase it from on and there's uh you find links to me you know my name is not the easiest thing to spill last name <laughs> so i would I, I would use the book and you can find uh stuff i've got a little biography and some other other related stories that appear on various sites and we'll put all the links up on our on ivy league murders um uh, facebook page and on instagram and twitter and uh, we encourage all of our listeners to get this really fascinating. It is. It's also a fascinating period in time. It, it kind is. of takes you back to that time period. Which yeah, is you know, really you love glamorous. It. Absolutely. Yeah. 
you know, if people love mid-century Southern California, and oh, here yeah. it is, Hollywood, Las Vegas, Palm Springs, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, it's oh. so LA, LA noir kind of in that in that area. It's 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 wonderful. It really yeah. is. It's been such a pleasure having you, Steve. And we really encourage everybody to get it. And if you have questions or feedback, definitely share it on our page or reach out to us. And thanks again, everyone. Thanks, Steve, for joining us. And thanks for listening to another episode of Ivy League Martyrs. Thank you. Murder, murder, murder.